You see, that's where these Jewish people were. Forget the law. Forget a heart of love for God. Man, I've been circumcised. I'm a member of the covenant. God has loved me eternally because of this outward ritual. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a message entitled, Religion That Will Take You to Hell, from the last few verses of Romans chapter 2. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is addressing Jews who felt secure in their salvation because they had been circumcised. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy addresses the prevalence of sexual immorality and what a destructive force it can have. Now, nowhere do you see the fallenness and depravity of man more manifest than in the procreative act? You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Are you saying sex is evil? No, sex is not evil. Sex is a beautiful thing as God designed it. He thought it up. He installed the plumbing. And it is to be with one man and one woman until death separates them. And so we would be wise, this generation, to listen to what God has to say. Because young people habitually ask when I evangelize them, why does God say that sex before marriage is wrong? Listen, whenever God says you shall not, he does for two reasons. One, to protect you. And secondly, to provide for you. There are no sexually transmitted sins, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. When it's one man, one woman, period. None. When it's a closed system, there are no problems. God's trying to protect you. He's trying to protect you physically, spiritually, psychologically, mentally in this covenant of marriage. And he's trying to provide the best for you because God knows when you do things his way, you experience his very best. You say, well, then what do you mean, pastor, when you say nowhere is the sinfulness of man more manifest in the procreative act? The answer is very simple. Sinful man produces sinful people. And nowhere in the anatomy of man is that more prevalent than in seen in the fact that the seed produces a sinner. Now, may I remind you that the Lord Jesus, as Paul is going to uh, teach us, was a sinless person in Romans 5 because he had no human father. God, the Holy Spirit, provided the seed for the Virgin Mary. And so... When a man procreates and brings a, a baby into this world through his, through his wife, it's not the sinful deeds that are passed on from the man, it's the very sinful nature. And Paul's going to explore that and expound that in great detail when we come to the fifth chapter. You say, then what's the connection to circumcision? Well, every time a, a man would either take it upon himself or on his child, he was reminded in the most sensitive part of his body how fallen he was. That was one of the ideas behind circumcision. You might want to go back and listen to the message I did on Genesis 17. And so every time, every time a man would circumcise his little boy in the eighth day, he was affirming that basic to man is a fallen, sinful nature in need of cleansing. And whenever people forgot of their need for circumcision, God reminded them. Listen to these words from Joshua 5. Uh, the people of Israel had crossed over the Jordan River where God stopped the waters and they went through on dry land as they did through the Red Sea. And they come into the promised land. And if you remember um, when that happened, 
uh, there was a new generation of people. Everyone 20 years of age and up had died in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness with the exception of two people. Two people who believed what God said, Joshua and Caleb. And so a whole new generation of people had sprung up. At this point, we though we don't know an exact number, we know two million left Egypt, 600,000 men excluding women and children. There's no doubt several million people. And God says this, these who had grown up in the wilderness, he says in Joshua 5, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel for a second time. Through the wilderness wanderings, many of the people had become indifferent. And you see their spiritual indifference in the fact that this new generation had not been circumcised. So Joshua, the Bible says, made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'arloth. Literally, the Hebrew means the hill of the foreskins. Probably a million to two million men were circumcised. There's literally a hill of four skins. And so God basically says, listen, all those who came out of Egypt were circumcised. But this new generation needs to be circumcised. And it is this physical surgery that Paul is going to spring off of here in Romans chapter 2 as a reminder of the need for spiritual surgery. God had established right at the beginning of the need for cleansing, the need for the shedding of blood. If you remember Adam and Eve through the work of their own hands, through what we call fig leaf religion, they tried to cover their shame and guilt by what they did. And so the very first death in all the universe takes place where God kills an innocent animal and provides for them coats of skin. You come into Genesis 4 and you see Cain and Abel coming to worship God and God is pleased with Abel's offering because he brings the firstlings of his flock. He brings an offering of blood while Cain brings something without the shedding of blood. Abel brought what God taught. Cain brought what he thought. One came on the basis of revelation, what Hebrews 11 calls on the basis of faith. The other came on the basis of his own thinking. Now, faith is always based in the Word of God. And don't buy into some of the 19th century liberalism that now has become popular in evangelical circles that said the difference between the sacrifice was either the origin of the sacrifice or the quality of the sacrifice. God had not said anything about the origin or the quality. But He had revealed the need for the shedding of blood. You say, how did these boys know? Either God spoke to them directly as he spoke directly to Adam and Eve, or they learned it through their parents. I mean, how else would mom have this beautiful fur coat and, and Adam this fur suit? And clearly in the New Testament, the Bible teaches they understood it, the need for the shedding of blood. Because the New Testament reveals something that we don't learn in the Old Testament about Abel. Jesus indicts the religious leaders of his day with the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And so we learn in the New Testament that Abel was a prophet. You say, of what significance is that? Peter says in Acts 10 and verse 43, that all the prophets preached that through his name, through Messiah's name, everyone who believes will find forgiveness of sin. And so these men knew that God had prescribed a way that the life is in the blood. And so without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
And God, when he initially established this covenant with Abraham, affirmed that. God is spirit. God doesn't have a, a, a body, the Father. He doesn't have a flesh and blood body. So if you remember in our study of Genesis 15, when God cut the covenant with Abram, he said, listen, I want you to get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram. I want you to get a pigeon and a turtle dove. I want you to cut the three animals and place a bird on either side. And then he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And back in those days when you made a very serious deal, you cut an animal in two and then you walk between it. And in essence, you said, may it be done to me as this animal if I do not keep my word. Now, Abraham is in a deep sleep because this is a unilateral covenant. And this is what some of my reformed friends don't understand. And so they say the church is the new Israel, that God's done with national Israel. But the Bible is very clear that God is not done with the people of Israel, that he used them the first time to bring about the first coming, and he will use them the second time to bring about the second coming. Abraham had nothing to do with this covenant. And so God, by design, separates the part that Abraham is going to contribute by 17 years. He comes to him when he was 99 years old, and he asked him to be circumcised with a flint knife which as an adult man would have been a very bloody, painful thing to be done. But God again was affirming a covenant. And though he made it with Abraham, he allowed others to come in and enter into that covenant as representatives of their household. The problem was there was a weak link in the covenant. And it was not God, it was man. And so man either through a deliberate malice or unintentionally would habitually continually sin. And so God demonstrates that man is a poor choice for the old covenant. Remember the word covenant means testament. And so our Bible is divided into two parts, the old covenant, the old testament, the old deal, the old promise, the new covenant, the new testament, the new deal. Jesus speaks of a new covenant, a new testament that he is going to enact with his blood as the son of man and as the son of God. And he, by his very nature, as the sinless, perfect son of God, would come and offer his blood. But the blood of circumcision reminded a Jew of the need for cleansing. Again, it pointed to Jesus, just like baptism looks back at what Christ has done, circumcision looked ahead at what Messiah would do. And all the way through the scripture, there's a river of blood, God affirming that because the penalty for sin is death, and therefore the life being in the blood without the shedding of blood, there's absolutely no forgiveness of sin. So what I'm wanting you to see is that as you study circumcision all the way through the Bible, I'm just hitting on a couple verses, go back and listen to that sermon if you want a full theology on it. But it's more than just some religious act. It has great, deep, significant spiritual meaning to it. So we're not surprised in Leviticus chapter 26 when God describes the unbelieving and rebellious as having uncircumcised hearts. Neither are we surprised in Deuteronomy 18, just before the children of Israel go into the promised land, when Moses says this, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good and reminding them of the spiritual nature of circumcision. He says, so 
Circumcise your hearts. Stiffen your neck no longer. If you have the New American Standard, very often it will give you the literal Hebrew out in the margin. Literally, the text reads, so circumcise the foreskin of your heart. What is the foreskin of your heart? Well, it's a term that denotes insensitivity to God because their hearts had become overgrown with sin. They had become dull and impervious to the voice of God. And so their receptiveness was always towards earth instead of heaven. And so during those 40 years, they're always complaining about the food, about the water, about the so-called good life they had all the way back there in Egypt. And it expressed poverty of souls in their hearts the most the place where they needed to be touched spiritually, they were uncircumcised. And so the Bible speaks of uncircumcised hearts. It also speaks of uncircumcised lips. When God calls Moses to be his representative to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, we read, behold, the sons of Israel, Moses said, have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Again, in the margin of the New American Standard, it literally reads, not for I am unskilled of speech, but the Hebrew text reads, for I am uncircumcised of lips. And in that same chapter, in verse 30, he'll make a similar protest. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? What does he mean to convey when he uses the words uncircumcised lips? Well, contrary to popular thinking, Moses was a very capable speaker. He was not an incapable speaker. When Stephen in that great sermon in Acts 7 reviews all of Israel's history of Moses, he says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. However, God had called them from the backside of the wilderness, having spent 40 years out of there, and he was far removed from any mighty words. His lips had become spiritually flabby. There was an inability to speak for God. They had become encumbered. They had become overgrown. They were uncircumcised. So Moses can say in Exodus 4, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, this did not mean that Moses never could speak with power. But since he was not able to do at this point in his life with power, God concedes and he gives him Aaron. But it becomes evident that Moses' lips did not remain uncircumcised. Read Exodus 8 through 11. He speaks with mighty power when he is before the Pharaoh of Egypt. In Exodus 13, on the day of the great Exodus, in unparalleled words, he reminds the Jewish people, some two million of them, of God's great power in delivering them through the plagues. And so remarkable are his words and his counsel that when he needs help, and God gives direction through Jethro to choose 70 men. The prayer is that the words of Moses and a part of his spirit would fall on them that they might be able to speak on his behalf. And if you've ever read Deuteronomy 9, the farewell address of Moses, it's one of the most powerful, articulate, uh, piercing sermons you will read in all of the Bible. His lips had become circumcised. Again, what I want you to see is that circumcision is more than just something that is physical. Yes, it pictured the shedding of blood. Yes, God speaks of the need for a circumcised heart. 
He speaks of uncircumcised lips. In fact, Stephen even speaks of uncircumcised ears. Ears that could really not take in and absorb the truth as he dealt with his brethren who ultimately stoned him. Ears that had become spiritually flabby. That's why some people can't stand to hear the Bible preach. And that's why some people have difficulty hearing the Bible preach. Why? Because they have flabby, uncircumcised ears. And it wasn't that long after God instituted circumcision that the children of Israel had developed uncircumcised hearts, uncircumcised lips, uncircumcised ears. And so many of the Jews had taken a right that was merely external in their mind and it had lost its internal significance. Now, when you come to the New Testament, when you understand the, the meaning of circumcision, then you understand what Paul means when he speaks of the true circumcision or the false circumcision or those here in our text this morning who have a need to be inwardly circumcised. Look again here in Romans 2 and verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Paul's point is, is that your circumcision is of value if you practice the law because then it points to a circumcised, regenerated heart. But if you don't obey the Lord, giving evidence of new life, giving evidence that you've been born from above, then it's an empty symbol and your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In fact, the second half of verse 25 is very interesting, literally in the Greek. He says, if you are a transgressor, transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become a foreskin. Just a piece of skin removed from the body with no spiritual reality. A symbol that is meaningless. What good is it if you come here on the Lord's day and you participate in the Lord's table? And you take the elements that are symbols of the body and blood of Christ and you're not moved to a cleansed life or you're not moved to receive Jesus as Lord. What good is it? It's no good. What good is it for you to be water baptized if you haven't first been spirit baptized? It's no good at all. Like circumcision, you can go through the outward without any inward reality. Let me clarify, on my left hand, this ring finger, I have a wedding band. I put it on 32 years ago this month. And it is a symbol that I've committed my life to one woman until Jesus comes back or until death separates us. But this symbol is only as good as my trust. And raw as it may sound, there is many a person in bed with someone to whom they are not married with their wedding band on. So what does the ban mean to the person who's cheating? Nothing. What good is it? It's just a piece of tarnished metal with no faith or trust to back it up. You see, what the wedding ban is to the Christian, or should be to the Christian, circumcision needed to be to the Jew. The Jew thought, I'm circumcised. God will accept me as being righteous. And Paul is saying, don't count on it. God doesn't look at circumcision of the body if you haven't been circumcised in the heart. God is saying, I don't look just at a, a ring on your finger. I look for an inward reality. 
So I don't want you to miss the significance of what Paul is saying to the Jewish people of his day. He is not saying that circumcision was worthless. It was something that God had commanded to the Jewish people. But he is saying that it is absolutely meaningless if it doesn't reflect an inward heart reality. So he goes on, follow along, verse 26, if you have ears to hear. And so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, showing therefore that he has new life in Jesus Christ, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Yes, it will. That is, if a Gentile, whom the Jews called uncircumcised dogs, if a Gentile who's never been circumcised lives a godly life because he's been born again, then that is of great significance in the eyes of God. Why? Because, again, a physical symbol without an inward reality is meaningless. What was better, to have the symbol with no inward reality or not to have the symbol and have the inward reality, the latter. And you know that because you see it all the way through Scripture. Do you remember on that occasion in 1 Corinthians 15 when Samuel comes and he has an encounter with Saul? Uh, God had told King Saul to go in and to wipe out those heinous, evil, idolatrous, child-sacrificing Amalekites. And we find a classic example of external obedience without inward reality. And so God said in 1 Samuel 15, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death. He said, put them all to death. Even the oxen and the sheep and the camels and the donkeys, everything. Well, if you remember, Samuel goes to sleep. And in the midst of a sound sleep, God wakes him up. And God appears to Samuel in a vision. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And so the next day, Samuel goes to see King Saul. And Saul says, good morning, brother Samuel. Blessed are you, O the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel says, oh, really? Have you fully obeyed? What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? So Saul comes up with a real spiritual excuse. He said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh, to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so Samuel responds to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now, before we point the finger at Saul, we need to point the finger at ourselves. People say, I've never watched porn. I've never looked at X-rated movies. And God says, but you watch movies that are filled with violence and sex and things that are deplorable to me that my son would never sit down and watch with you. We say, oh God, I, I take care of my children. You know, after all, I bring them to church and I make sure they're in Sunday school. And God says, that's real good, but I want my word to first be in your heart so as you walk in the way, as you rise up, as you lay down, you can teach your children in the everyday moments of life. 
Oh God, I've read my Bible and I prayed to you this morning and God says, wonderful, but I first want you to go fix it with your brother and then come and worship me. You see, half-hearted, lukewarm obedience displeases God. Throughout the word of God, partial obedience is disobedience to God. So has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings as in sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. So God never intended faith and obedience to be replaced with just some symbol, some ritual like circumcision or baptism or whatever else you can think of. And so these people that Paul is describing here in Romans 2 and verse 26 had come to believe that the mark was enough and it was nothing more than like a tattoo. Suppose I wore some gold cross on my lapel and I wore it on every shirt and every suit I owned. And I said, this is a sign of my covenant to my family. I I wear this cross as a symbol that I have a deep loving commitment to my wife and to my children. Every time you see me, you see me with this cross, I'm like, man, he's a, he's a religious guy. He must really be committed to, to his family. And then you see me out in the parking lot, and I'm just chewing out my wife and berating my children. And you come up to me and say, hey, that, that's not a very loving thing to do. Hey, pal, don't you see this cross on my lapel? I wear this cross. But I heard what you said to your family. Hey, who cares? Forget my family. Forget my kids. I'm wearing this cross. You see, that's where these Jewish people were. Forget the law. Forget a heart of love for God. Man, I've been circumcised. I'm a member of the covenant. God has loved me eternally because of this outward ritual. And so God wants to make it very clear through his apostle that external religion cannot replace righteous living. Secondly and quickly, external religion cannot protect against eternal accountability. External religion cannot protect against eternal accountability. Follow his argument as he closes in verse 27. For he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law in circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Implied answer to the rhetorical question, yes, he will. A saved, transformed, born-again, cleansed Gentile doesn't need circumcision, and a disobedient, lawless, unsaved Jew with his circumcision will, be, will find it to be useless. God is saying that the Gentile, though uncircumcised but saved, is more pleasing to him so much so that he can judge the Jew, though he be circumcised, but he's not been regenerated by the Spirit. For a copy of today's message entitled, Religion That Will Take You to Hell, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM10. You can also listen to this or any of the messages in this series using our phone and tablet app available from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. We hope these studies from the Book of Romans are building up your ability to confidently share the truth of Christ with a world that's becoming increasingly ignorant of the gospel. We need your help in continuing our mission of sharing this truth over the airwaves and through the Internet. If you can help, please call us at 877-787-7478 
or go online at searchthescriptures.org and make a generous tax-deductible contribution. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Berge's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our message entitled, Religion That Will Take You to Hell. Join us then as we search the scriptures.